This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the wheelhouse. You can see the confidence build day by day, and there is an electricity to his personality on the field that's really hard to look away from. Starring Jerry Depoto. And Jerry Depoto to the plate with the 2-2 pitch to Alex. Swing and a miss. He struck him out on the fastball. With Aaron Goldsmith. And now chapter three is, yeah, he's a real ball player. He's an impactful player. He can do a ton for your team. And this is a guy that can really help to solidify a big league lineup. And Gary Hill Jr. He seems along those lines where he wants to be great and does everything possible to go get it. It's time for the wheelhouse. Here's Aaron. It has been far too long. It is time once again to get to the wheelhouse podcast. Aaron Goldsmith with Jerry Hill and Jerry DePoto. Jerry, the last time we talked, man, compared to this time that we were talking, things are much different in Mariners land, wouldn't you say? Well, I did. things are much different in Mariners land now to, to where they were just 10 days ago. So <laughs> it's, it's been a particularly good couple of weeks, you know, drama aside, you know, there was some drama baked in there with injuries and suspensions, but, you know, our team's playing well right now and, and riding really the best wave we've had since April of this year. We are baseball and podcast junkies, which is why we are recording this on the off day in advance of the Blue Jays series. And along those lines, Jerry, after the Mariners dropped four out of five at home against the Angels, and it really felt like, how is Scott Service and this clubhouse going to get this thing put back together and get back on a winning track going into the All-Star break? Your ball club has won 12 of the last 15. In that stretch of time, the pitching has been fantastic. They're allowing fewer than three runs per game, an ERA of roughly two and a half over a long stretch of time. And really, as we know, the, the pitching trend goes back even further than the last 15 games but as you watch uh this recent stretch for the mariners aside from the pitching and you can include that if you like what is it that has impressed you the most that stood out to you the most jerry you know probably the thing that that stands out with this group of players dating back to last year even and you know and you could argue over time in in, in their development is this is a really resilient group of guys and they really are and and just when you think you've hit that low point, that is typically when they bounce back. And they, this was a, a recurring theme for us in 2021. And, and you know, it, it, we're proving that to be true again this year. We, we've had some really untimely and difficult injuries to absorb. Losing, you know, Mitch for as long as we've lost Mitch. I think Mitch has played nine games this season. And one of those lasted exactly one AB. So since April, truly, we've had Mitch for for one at bat. And, and that's something that, that we weren't prepared to absorb in any meaningful way. And then lo and behold, Taylor Trammell steps up, TT steps up and I think does a phenomenal job. And, you know, we, we go through this last 10 days or so, we get in the big brawl with the angels in Anaheim uh, Sunday before last. And, and we wind up losing a couple of players and on the heels of losing Ty France for at least a couple of weeks, 
to an IL. And, you know, it's at that time that we, you know, we acquire Carlos Santana. He's done a really nice job for us. And then we see guys start to rise up. You know, Dylan Moore has played extraordinarily well. I, what you see in contributions from, from Sam Haggerty, the rise of Cal Raleigh, which has been a big push over the course of this last, we'll call it month, you know, six weeks. And then obviously the performance of Julio Rodriguez, which has really been kind of otherworldly for, for a couple of months now. You know, the guys stepping up right when you need them to step up, you know, and then we get to the pitching, which has simply been among the best in baseball for dating back until to late May. It's, it's been extraordinary. Let's start with Julio, because as you spotlighted, the last couple of months has been ridiculous. When you go back to May 1st, he has simply been one of the best players in baseball. No matter how you slice it, the names that surround him are the Goldschmidts, the Devers, the Judges. Alvarez, that's who we're talking about. That's the kind of player he has been. What in your mind has allowed him to take that step from April to being one of the best players in the game the last two months? If, if I had to pick one thing, I would say it's his baseball IQ. And in addition to crazy talent that, that just jumps out, he's He's an unbelievable mover. He can run. He's got power. He plays good defense. All, all the things that you can see day to day. But maybe the, the biggest of the intangibles is he has a great awareness for where he is on the field and a baseball IQ that allows him to learn very quickly. You know, he, he senses the game. He's made mistakes through the course of the season, and he learns as quick as any young player that, that really I can recall being around. And, and I've been around a lot of really good young players over time. But, you know, Julio's just been such a quick learner. He's, and he doesn't hold on to, to the day before, whatever that was. You know, if it was three for four, if it was 0 for four, he just moves on to the next day and he plays with joy and, and he lets it all hang out. And, you know, he could strike out in his first three at-bats in a game and, uh, and come up in the fourth at-bat and just rifle a, a double to right center field to, to start the, the winning rally. He just got such a short memory when you need to have it. And, and such a good mind for the game as in, in order to help him grow. And, and, and I think those are the things that really stand out to me with, with the obvious exception of his, his talent. When we talk about Julio, we know that he has this incredible power, but we just didn't see it the first month of the season, right? He hit the ball hard, but oftentimes it was on the ground. If you look at just raw barrels, just the number of barrels from Julio Rodriguez in the month of April, he had two of them. That was it, two barrels. And for those who aren't familiar, when we talk barrels, we're talking the absolute perfect result of a swing for a hitter, right? The ball that is just crushed on a great angle that oftentimes will result in, well, certainly extra base hits, and it feels like more times than not home runs. Since May 1st, the time frame that Gary was referencing, Jerry, he has 29 barrels. Those who have more than him. Aaron Judge, Kyle Schwarber, Shohei Otani. He is tied with Jordan Alvarez for the fourth most barrels in baseball since May the 1st. Of those 29 barrels, 14 of them have been home runs, so essentially all but one of his home runs so far this year. Have you seen something that has been an adjustment for Julio since the first month of the season that has resulted in this, or is him this just a matter of him becoming more comfortable and the game slowing down, and then thus he is lifting the ball and just crushing it? I think it's more the latter than the former. You know, it, uh, if there was one significant adjustment for Julio, I would say this dates back to late April. You know, the first three weeks or so of the season, he was well off the plate. His outer half coverage or, you know, the, the coverage of that edge pitch 
where we saw him over the course of that first three weeks get rung up on strikes, on, on frankly, strikes or balls that were called strikes. But he so often was not able to cover the ball in the outer half, and he, and he was in and out of the zone. And I know it was it was suggested to him around that time we need to just creep up on the plate a little bit. Because I mean, sometimes you know you you just you you don't recognize where you are in the box or on the rubber, and just the smallest little adjustment can make a world of difference. And he crawled up on the plate just a little bit, and almost on cue that night he he started to really take off. And, and, uh, you know, it's, some of it is that the natural evolution of a player, you know, Julio is 21 years old and for all the barrels, for all of the exit velocity, for as hard as he's hit the ball dating back to, you know, age 17, you know, it really didn't always manifest itself in the form of home runs. It, it was a lot of low tracing contact line drives, ground balls, and he was a good hitter first. And I think the best or, or most well-rounded offensive players or batter's box players in baseball, that's the way it starts out. You know, the power comes after the hit and, and the understanding of where the strike zone is. And though that's how it's gone for Julio. Uh, we've always seen all of the, the, the traits of, of a power hitter. Now we're starting to see it translate with balls that he's actually hitting over the fence. And you know, for anyone who's watched him for any period of time, take his BP and, you know, even as, as a teenager in Peoria, Arizona, just watching him launch balls <laughs> over, you know, a hundred feet over the, the left field fence. It's, you know, it's always been in there. He's just figuring out how to access it and, and how to, to adapt his swing to the, to the necessary lift uh, to create home run contact. So speaking of home runs and hard hit balls, I don't know if everyone realizes this, but we see it with Julio. He hits the ball hard. He's got a great barrel rate. It's funny. Cal Raleigh has been right with him in terms of hard hit rate this season. His barrel rate right now is almost identical to Julio's. And Cal had a wonderful June. He was one of the best hitting catchers in all of baseball. From your view, what did you see from Cal Raleigh this past month? I saw confidence it, more than anything else. It, it's, you know, I, I don't know how many games off the top of my head Cal caught for us last year. I think it was in the neighborhood of 40. And, you know, he, he comes back this year in the first month and a half or so of the season. It, it was a particular struggle for him. And, you know, it resulted in a, in a week-long trip back to Tacoma. And I don't know what the magic sauce that, that, that exists for short stints in Tacoma resulting in bounce backs for, for major league players. But we have had a little bit of luck in that area. And, and, you know, this dates back to, to Mike Zanino and, and Luis Torrens and, you know, guys that, that have gone back even James Paxton in a different category of player that have gone back to, to Tacoma spent a brief period of time focusing on one small thing you know, and in Cal's case, I think it was just going to play. And, you know, the one thing that I've taken away from Cal, watching Cal blossom in the middle of the summer, you know, is that he's always played virtually every day, either as a catcher or a DH. He's a switch hitter. And this dates back to college. It's through our minor league system. And then we called him up to the big leagues last year when we already had Luis Torrens and, and Tom Murphy on our roster. And there were, we were rotating the opportunities between Murph and Cal and DH days typically went to, to LT. So there wasn't great opportunity for Cal to get the reps 
outside of the one day and, you know, in two or three that he might be behind the plate. And now watching him take off, I think it's the confidence of knowing there is no net. There's not three catchers on the roster. There's not a guy that generally is taking the reps that, that are typically the norm for your number one guy. And while there may have been more of a 55-45 split between Murph and Cal, Murph, as we headed down the stretch, Murph became the, the more prominent figure. And when Tom went down this year, Cal just took off. And I think a lot of it was there was no net. And he just, he let it eat a little bit. You know, he just, he let himself play freely. And uh, we started to see all of the same things that he's done throughout his minor league career, which is call and catch an excellent game. He's thrown very well. And we're seeing that kind of walk power combo that is really devastating when he's, when he's making that hard barrel contact like he is now. Uh, we we're gonna we're gonna pause briefly, not for station identification, but we're gonna pause uh, our offensive talk for a very topical stump JD that fits in nicely. Yeah, we're not gonna wow. save it. We're not gonna save it for the end. We're gonna cut you down to the knees right now, mid show. I think that's gonna be that's it's gonna be good for your confidence. It's time to let it eat on stump JD. You know, we um we had a 2020 season circled for Julio uh, fairly early. Wouldn't that be fair to say, Gary? Yes, we, we did fairly early, although that conversation is starting to transition a little. Yeah, yeah. you will understand, uh, Jerry, that we've gotten a little aggressive with 2020. We've moved it to a 30-30 possibility for Julio Rodriguez. Uh, he is, after all, the fastest player in baseball history to 15 home runs and 20 stolen bases. So we figure, let's not get aggressive here. So we were curious how many players in baseball history have had 30, 30 seasons, 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases. And as expected, you know, they're over the course of over a hundred years, right? There've been a lot of 30, 30 seasons, not many in the grand scheme of things, but it has happened before. But Jerry, there are two players who have had the most 30, 30 seasons. They have each had five seasons of 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases. Can you name these two players? 30, 30 seasons, the two... I'm going to say Bobby Bonds. That is correct. And is it Barry Bonds? Jerry, you got it. You got it. Wow. Is that, a, is that a, I mean, great, great job on your part, Jerry. I'm glad we did this mid-show and didn't save it for the end. I expect an even better second half of the program with this inflated sense of confidence you have now. But how about Bobby and Barry Bonds? Isn't that incredible? It's crazy. And, and really – couldn't have been different in the way they approached an at bat. <laughs> There's having watched Bobby when I was a kid and having played against Barry, there it was a very different, you know, uh, psychology getting into the batter's box. And I, the, but something's going on, you know, with the genes that allow that to happen. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, an incredible skill. And, you know, we, we've talked about Julio as, you know, as this has gone on now with the stolen bases, especially, you know, we, we always thought that the power would would develop the way it's developing, maybe not quite as early as it's developing, but, you know, that it would start to develop. You know, the stolen bases are something that that has just been a an unexpected surprise. And, you know, at least in the volume that they're coming. And, you know, we, we talked about this as it related to, say, Mike Trout. You know, when Mike came to the big leagues, I think, as a 20 year old, he stole 49 bases. And, and then you saw that, that stolen base, even the attempts at stolen bases, just, you know, 
start start to wane and then very quickly you know it became more hit get on base and power and and i think especially when you consider julio's playing center field mike played center field you know bobby bonds was was primarily you know a corner outfielder barry bonds was primarily a left fielder the when, when those guys when those guys who are playing a corner you know, have the opportunity to go out and steal a base. It's a little bit different than the guy that has to play center field and cover all that big space. And I wonder if the that over time, the stolen base part of that equation becomes a secondary skill or consideration because he starts to preserve the legs for the defense and for the 700 plate appearances. But especially early in the career, the fact that this combination exists it makes five seasons of that type of production seem phenomenal. And I don't know if that's logical to, to consider for a center, you know, middle of the field, center field type outfield defender. But what a crazy skill set to be able to do what he's doing and, and, uh, and really put himself, there's no one that's ever had a 30 30 season where you don't look at the name and go, wow. <laughs> I mean, those are real guys. And, and uh, you know, that had real careers and so many of them, impacted championship teams as the as the the athletic center of that team and that and that's what julio has a chance to to be for us you mentioned the names and trout's 2012 season since trout the guys who have done it bets jose ramirez acuna yelich did it the year after he won the mvp he was the runner-up in 19 last year cedric mullins who had a I say sneaky great season because he played for the Orioles and nobody was paying attention, but Mullins had a great year last year. He did it. You're right. The guys who do that are, they're dudes, man. They're real dudes. And um, there aren't many of them doing it at 21 years old. Jerry, congrats on getting stumped, JP. I mean, that was really nicely done. There's, I, I feel like this made the whole stop in the middle of the program well worth it. Maybe we do this. Maybe we do this moving forward, Jerry. I mean, if you're going to, you're going to post like this, we might have to. Let's uh, pivot and turn our attention to the pitching front for the Mariners. It has been amazing, the transition that Robbie Ray has made. Uh, we saw Rob, Robbie really kind of have to grind through some starts pre-two-seam fastball, and he was really grinding that day when he invented it in Houston or reinvented it. I guess he did throw it before in his career, but it had been – I don't know if he had any kids the time that he uh, last threw a two-seam fastball. He now the father of three. What has it been like for you watching him not only kind of – resurrect this pitch midstream during a major league season but have it become a, a dominating factor and turn into this pitch mix that since he's had it jerry i mean you've seen the starts he's been phenomenal it's been the best version of robbie ray as a mariner maybe the best version of robbie ray which is you know if you consider that coming off of a cy young winning season you know his last six starts have been insane i mean it's been excellent and and it really goes back to the, the implementation of this two-seam fastball, you know, throwing the sinker. And, and you know, my understanding of the, the when this began, he was having in the midst of a rough start in Houston. You know, when I would say for the first month and a half of our season, Robbie showed you all of the reasons why. We, we coveted him as a free agent and wanted to bring him to Seattle. And he just kept running into that one inning where he was having a difficult time managing that inning and, and it would result in you know a crooked number and we just weren't scoring particularly well at the time and and it turned into a loss or, or a game that, that turned into an adventure that didn't necessarily look like that in the early going 
and it would be surrounded by two dominant innings on one end and three dominant innings on the other end. But we kept running into that that one inning. And then we were in Houston and and he was in the middle of what I would call a real grinded out start where they were just on everything he was throwing. And, and I, my understanding is that he, in the middle of that game, just decided I'm going to start throwing this two-seamer and see if it works. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he just did it, it, which is a courageous move in, in a major league game for an accomplished pitcher and, you know, and a star in his own right against a lineup like that, that is, is just loaded with some of the more prominent offensive players in our league. And, and it worked. You know, he, he found his way through the end of that outing. And he's kind of made it a part of his approach ever since. And, and my my thought on the, the pitch itself, it's not really about the, the pitch being as dominant. It's about what that pitch does to the rest of his arsenal. You know, during the, the start of the season, Robbie could get very one-sided on the plate. You know, he could get very glove-side centric. And, you know, that's where he was going to go most of the time with his slider. It's where he was most comfortable going with his fastball. And... And if you miss by just a little bit when you're going in there, it's a ball or it's potential damage, you know, when you're over and over and that's the only place you go. So, you know, that the, the, the ride, the fastball slider down, it's, it works, but you have to be precise. And, and, and therein was the issue. And by implementing that two seamer and now creating you know, he's got the slider that goes down to the glove side. He's got the, the sinker that, that just tails down and away from the right-hand hitter in on the lefty. He's got the four-seamer that he can ride up in the zone. That's still a thing. He's got the slider now that he can backdoor and, and kind of shape to work with that two-seamer. It, it's almost as if it created four pitches, you know, and, and instead of just one. But most especially, it changed the where the hitter's looking. You know, if the hitter's always looking in one small little space, the mistakes can get accentuated, like you saw. That's why we were running into that one inning. And now that he has so much utility of the rest of the strike zone and the hitter has to respect other things, it frees up the entire strike zone for him. Since that the, the onset or the implementation of that two-seamer, his swing and misses have gone through the roof. The way the other pitches play has really started to, to, to blossom. And if you're going to play a long career, a successful career in this league, you're probably going to have to change your song a couple of times along the way. You, you know, it's not just the same tune. And it's a Robbie just showed you, I can make the adjustment to continue to perform at a very high level, even if it's in a different, slightly different way than I did before which gives me great encouragement for the next four years. What I find most amazing about the transition too is, you know, we've seen pitchers, pitchers make adjustments during the season. Obviously they add pitches. What you don't usually see is a pitcher add a pitch during the season and then sometimes throw it over 50% of the time in a start. You've been there. You've been on a major league mound. How difficult is it to make an adjustment like this midseason? pretty radical if you think about it and you know to throw it as much as he's thrown it I use the word courageous it is courageous we work in a game or these players play in a league where this especially when you're a star level player like Rob at uh, when when you are struggling it feels like everybody's watching you and to make such a radical change when everybody's watching you is it, it takes courage to do that and you know I can't recall too many pitchers or, or even players that have made that kind of radical adjustment on the fly in a season. 
you'll see things like that from year to year that somebody picks up over the off season that they try to implement when a new year begins. But you just don't see you don't see something like this. And then here, this is now a, not just a part of what I do. This is a big part of what I do. And give him credit. He's, he's courageous. And, and, and that means something because I, I think it also showed our young players that even the most well-decorated or you know, successful of the players in our clubhouse, they understand that the game is truly about making adjustments. In the Mariners' bullpen, uh, we were all excited when this season began to see Andres Munoz for a full year. We got a, a small taste, final game of last season for young Munoz. And, you know, this year it's been amazing how quickly he has evolved from opening day until as of the time now as we approach the All-Star break. Scott is now using him back-to-back days at times. He's now using him multiple innings like we saw in the finale in San Diego where, by the way, he struck out Manny Machado at, at nearly 103 miles an hour in a huge leverage point in the game. He made a clear change to his slider uh, maybe three or four weeks ago. And a slider that was in the neighborhood of 84 to maybe 87 miles an hour is now in the neighborhood of 87 to – we've seen it even at 92 miles an hour. And I'll be honest, Jerry, when, when I saw that kind of evolve a few outings after another, I thought, oh, wh- why, why is he changing the slider? <laughs> because the numbers against it, as you know – are minuscule. Nobody was touching it, but it does appear, Jerry, and I'm sure this was the intent the whole time. I mean, his fastball has become so much better because of the slider. Can you walk us through the kind of the thought process, how it came about, and, and clearly the results? It's you know, it's almost like a chicken and an egg. You know, w- which one comes first, the, the fastball evolution or the the slider? And I, you know, I'm gonna give a ton of credit to Mooney for actually being able to to do this, you know, and and throw the slider that much harder because it's it's not that easy to do. <laughs> but he's always thrown, you know, it's 99 to 102, and and he's got an explosive velocity to his fastball. But what we saw in the early months of the season is that the league the league could hit his fastball. The result was that most of the positive outcomes for him were from standing on his slider, and we saw it just. I, I want to call it devolve, you know, his fastball usage devolved into, you know, almost like a secondary or a show pitch. And it, when you throw a hundred miles an hour, that's an, that's a shame that, that, that that's the way it would work out. We were on the road trip through Baltimore and Texas and Houston, you know, and in and about that time, I know Trent Blank and Pete Woodworth sat down with Mooney and they talked to him about, you know, maybe a, a better balance between the fastball and the slider. And, you know, as importantly, or maybe more importantly, as it works out, throwing the slider harder. He has an awesome slider. It's a, the, the action on the pitch is phenomenal. His comfort now throwing the pitch for a strike is, has increased from month to month as this season goes along. And once the slider velocity ticked up, all of a sudden we saw the functionality of his fastball just change entirely. And, you know, now his fastball it was became a primary part of his approach. And, you know, and rather than seeing what we were seeing, which was almost a three quarters slider, you know, lean for a period of time. Now we're back to the fastball can start account or it can finish account. The slider has become at times, and I don't even want to say at times, much of the time, the slider has become virtually unhittable because when you have to protect against 102 miles an hour and he's showing you that he's that he trusts his fastball and he's throwing his fastball in the zone he's throwing it above the zone 
and his locations with his fastball have been so much better than they were in the early going that now the world becomes your oyster when you want to throw that slider. And he's throwing it actually a smaller percentage of the time in the grand scheme of things and the impact of the pitch. Now I say that it's a slight adjustment down, but the impact of that pitch has been, I, it's a really hard pitch to hit. I mean, even just a clip foul and good big league hitters are showing you that. And it, he's, he's so young in his major league development, even in his professional development. And, and to see the strides that he's made, especially over the last, we'll call it six weeks is, is pretty phenomenal. And I don't think it's a coincidence to look at how you've been playing, how the Mariners have been playing. And Munoz has been such a big part of the bullpen. Castillo has been elite here lately. Seawald has been steady. I was looking at strikeout rates in the American League for relievers this morning. And Eric Swanson's third on the list behind Munoz, who's second. And Penn Murphy's just outside of the top 10. How do you feel about your bullpen right now, and especially looking ahead to the rest of the season? I mean, I love where our bullpen's at. This is, and, and I, I will say this, and I may regret it, that, and, and come back and have this conversation in October and say, oh, did I say that? This is the, this is the best pitching staff we've ever had in, in my time here. It's from 1 to 13. Every guy, especially here over these last two months, has, has carried their water and and they, each one of them in some way has shown you that they've, they can contribute in, in the biggest moments. Our bullpen is as deep as it's ever been. I, I think the, you know, the sneaky addition of Ryan Barucki, who I think gave us is something from the left side in the stuffy family, you know, it's, it's mid upper nineties with it, with, with sync. And, and we accentuated the things that Ryan does well, which is generally a strength of our pitching group, you know, Woody and, and Trent and, and Joel Furman and, and, and the, the whole of our group, you know, they've done a phenomenal job in, in working with the Ryan Baruckis, the Eric Swanson's, and the, you know, the Penn Murphy's and you know, every good story in a bullpen has to have someone that you weren't, counting on to rise up and become so much more than, than they do it's go back and look at any of the good bullpens in history and there's always that one and there maybe there's more than one story in that pen and for us this year that's been Penn Murphy you know we could not have imagined the, the contributions that he's made he's been one of the most valuable relievers in the American League to this point and the fact that he can be that we call it the pivot man you know that that pivot bullet in the middle of a game who comes in with the two runners on or transitions the game from the sixth inning to your, to your highest leverage relievers has given the others so much freedom to do what they do in a game. And, you know, and the fact that he can take the middle of the lineup the first time through allows you to save Andres Munoz or Diego Castillo or Paul Sewell for the, for the next time through. And when, when you've got that many different options in, in, a, in a bullpen, it really does create so many different, you know, I guess, angles that, that Scott and the staff can take in, in putting together nine inning games, especially when, like we have over the last six weeks, seven weeks, your, your starting pitchers are consistently getting you deep in a game with a chance to win. It's funny, Jerry, because uh, I always kind of get pet peeved when people say, you know, he just doesn't look nervous out there. Because I, I'm trying to think back to the last time I saw uh, big leaguers teeth chatter either in the batter's box or on the pitcher's mound and yet Penn Murphy who's been in the show for less than a half season he 
he carries himself, Jerry, like he's been a big leaguer for five years. I mean, are you, do you see something similar as well? Yeah, and, and I can tell you that that's mostly what you would have thought watching Penn pitch an A-ball. <laughs> I mean, he, <laughs> he's always had, you know, it, it's just that natural air, the confidence that I belong here. And, you know, it's, it's oftentimes, and we, we've talked about this in the past, about a variety of different players, you know, it, believing that you are the best player on that field in that moment, you know, intuitively, if, if you asked me at any point during my baseball playing career, you know, in November or December or March, you know, are, are you as good as so-and-so? I would, I would say, oh, no, no, I'm not that good. You know, but if you asked me somewhere in pit, between pitches 12 and 14 in an inning, is so-and-so better than you are? I'd say, what are you, out of your mind? <laughs> you in that moment just know that, that you are, you're the best player on the field. And when you start questioning that, you will no longer be able to compete with those players because these are the best players in the world. And, and unless you believe that you are among them uh, and that that's where you belong, you won't survive in the league. And, and it seems to me that Penn has a natural confidence that he is one of them. And, and it's sure playing out that way because he has been a breath of fresh air. When our bullpen wasn't going so good, he became a stabilizing factor down there. And now the bullpen has been very good for, for quite a period of time. And, you know, as you guys alluded to, the thing I'm most excited about is like the dream outcome for me with our bullpen is we strike them out and we don't walk them. And, you know, as a result, we do give up a few more homers than, than you'd like to see, which I think generally holds our war down. But, you know, the, the combination of strikeouts and, and few walks is that's when you are a manager planning out your last, you know, nine outs. That's what you want. I know they can miss bats and they're not going to give up free runners. And, you know, you might give up the occasional solo homer and that's the price you pay for, for living in the strike zone the way these guys have. Jerry, we are quickly approaching the all-star break as we record this, just four more home games and the Mariners go to DC for two and then Arlington for four. And then you and everybody in your department get to put their feet up for the all-star break and really uh, take it easy and relax for a little while. As you prepare for the MLB draft, Jerry, it's back. This is not going away, it seems like. Uh, there is no rest for the weary. Uh, you have the 21st pick, is that correct? That is correct. I, I, I was unaware that we were allowed to put our feet up, but yeah, <laughs> yeah no. we do, in yeah. fact, have the 21st that pick. Was, that was old. That was old baseball, Jerry. This is new baseball we're talking about. Uh, so what's it been like? You're, you're, you're balancing the season with – the draft coming up during what was previously, a, a, uh, I guess, a dormant time. That's probably an exaggeration, but it was certainly more dormant then than it is now. How's draft process been for you guys? And you're not, you're not incorrect. It was pretty dormant. <laughs> you know, just like, go, taking those three days was was uh, like an oasis in the middle of a season in some ways. But you know, this the new draft. I guess the the location. You know, what makes it a little ominous is that we're coming up on the halfway point in the season. We do have trade deadline at the end of this month or the second of August. And, you know, somewhere in the middle of there, we're going to execute, you know, the, the, the amateur draft in and around the all-star game. So uh, it has its challenges from a time management standpoint. What we've done, and I think what many teams have done is, you know, we did our first round of meetings, you know, what we call our regional meetings, where we break down each player in, in each scout's area. 
we did that the week before last, you know, and, and each scout gets, you know, let's call it two hours to, to run through the players in their area that they are most interested in. You know, starting tomorrow, which will be the start of our series with the Blue Jays, we will begin our national meetings, which will lead us up to draft day on July 17th. And, and you know, we, we've this year we have had a difficult time managing our way through the draft process because just like the first half of the season for the Mariners, lots of injuries on the amateur baseball front this year that that have created a little bit of a ripple effect through the draft. And, and that's likely to, to have an effect on, on our position, you know, picking 21. But, you know, Scott Hunter, our scouting group, our analysts, and, you know, our, our draft model, you know, really become a, a crutch for us at this time. It's, they've done a wonderful job. They continue to, to you know, fill talent into our system. And not just the, the, the Kirby's and the Gilbert's, it's guys that are happening in the second and the fifth and the eighth and the 12th and the 30th rounds. You know, it's, it's guys like Penn Murphy, who we talked about. We are filling our system in, in positive ways. And this is my favorite time of year with, with going through the draft. I love it. I, I, I know Scott feels the same way. We sat together this morning for about an hour and a half, just talking about his observations of this pool of players. And, and tomorrow we get to start talking about the names and, and uh, it's like Christmas for us. Well, while we are on the paddleboard on the lake during the all-star break, Jerry, we'll, uh, we'll be thinking about you guys and, and <laughs> Christmas and we'll both, we'll both be in our happy place. It sounds like. Yeah. I've, I'm believe me. I, I'm all for a good paddleboard every now and then, but <laughs> not in July anymore. Yeah. Not in July, at least not during the break. Well, Hey, with that in mind, we really appreciate you carving out some time. We know it's busier now than ever for you and it's been good wheelhouse with you. And we certainly appreciate it. Man. Nah, it's been too long. Really enjoyed it guys.